You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Romans. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join him now. We thank you for this series on suffering that you've been taking us through. And and as we've gone through the series, we've seen you taking us through suffering. Uh, Lord, just so many phone calls this week and just so many uh, just time spent with people who are hurting uh, recovering from surgeries, uh, in the midst of marital distress, um, just even feeling just the weight of their fallen condition and just longing for um, just sanctification to be final in their life, that they just would never struggle with sin again. And, and uh, Lord, we just know that suffering is just, it's, it's a real uh, thing that's happening in our midst. And so I just pray that as we look at these incredible truths laid out for us at the end of chapter eight, God, that you would just lift our eyes up to heaven. Uh, Lord, get our eyes off of ourselves and off of our present circumstances and get them on the one who is sovereign and in control and so full of love for us. Lord God, we pray that your spirit would speak words of encouragement, words of hope, words of life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I've uh, been doing about a, a five-week series in suffering now. Uh, this is our 30th study in the book of Romans, uh, and we're only really halfway through. So uh, looking forward to probably another 30 weeks or so uh, in the book, aren't you? Um, but uh, as we've come to verse 28, we've kind of come to just a great truth in the section on suffering that we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are the called according to his purpose. It's this wonderful truth that we have, a wonderful promise that we have in the midst of suffering, that these things will be working for good. And we studied last week that that good is not materialistic good necessarily. Uh, it's not selfish good, like so often we want it to be, and it's not uh, temporary or circumstantial good necessarily. And if you have that kind of an interpretation of this text that God is working my materialistic good, my selfish good to come about and all these temporary circumstances against me, it's all going to be bliss. Then you're going to leave today sorely disappointed. And you would have probably left the last six weeks very disappointed. Um, and so we just want to bring good biblical truth to our sufferings. We're, we're putting suffering in its place in these weeks. Uh, are we not? Uh, there in 28 and 29, we come a, a, across just a beautiful truth of God's word, and that is God's sovereignty in the midst of suffering. We've noticed that there's man's responsibility in loving God, but it all comes under God's calling upon his life, God's calling according to his purposes. We come across these great theological words that are nothing to be afraid of, words like foreknow. Uh, that God foreknew us. That means to know beforehand, from before the foundations of the world. He, know, he knew those who would believe in him and who would have relationship in him. He knew who the church would be. Not only has he foreknown us, but he's predestined us according to his foreknowledge 
but according to his will and his good pleasure as well. Uh, there's such a mystery involved in God's foreknowledge. There's such a mystery in God, uh, involved in the predestination of God, that God would predestine us to be Christians. Um, and as you look at God's sovereignty, there's always a tension between God's sovereignty and man's choices and decisions and man's free will. And uh, believe it or not, we're not going to get into that right now. Uh, we're going to get into that in chapter 9. Um, and we're going to wrestle together and we're going to look at the word together and we're going to all be the sensible people that God's called us to be that have our own Bibles. And we're going to go home and we're going to read and we're going to dig into the original language and the context and the whole of scripture. And then when we're done with that, we're still going to wrestle and we're still not going to have it figured out and we're still going to see the mystery. But by gosh, we're going to love Jesus all the more and be encouraged in his sovereignty in his life. Now, the reason we're not getting into it now, and the thing is, I've prepared a whole study for it now. I was just back during worship, cutting my notes in half and saying, we're not getting into it now. We're not getting into foreknowledge at this moment in the depth that we could. We're not going to get into predestination in the depth that we could. And here's why. The reason that Paul brings it up in verse 28 and 29 is not for our intellectual good, but rather for pastoral good. And rather for comforting purposes. Now in chapter 9, we're going to get into it. And the can is going to be opened up. And we're going to see that intellectually, God's going to show us his sovereignty and election. Both for the nation of Israel and also for the individual Christian. But today, we just get to sit back and relax and take comfort in the truth that if you're a Christian here today and you're suffering, which, raise your hand, it's all of us, right? Then God knew it. God knew it. And you know what? God knew he'd love you. And you know what? God knew that you would rest and trust in him. And he's predestined you to this. And we looked at it last week in Genesis and in Job and in Esther, how God meant for these things to happen. Yeah, sure, Satan was, you know, trying to cause things for destruction in the book of Job and in Joseph's life and in, you know, in Esther's life. He wanted to wipe out the Jews. But God was meaning for something to happen in his sovereignty. And so as Christians, let's rest. Okay, we're in a chapter on suffering. We can just say, hey, God knew and God knows and God's destined and God's meant. But it all comes down to Glory. It all comes down to glory. It doesn't end in your tragedy and your suffering and your sinking to the bottom of the ocean. But no, it ends in glory, um, verse 30, at the very end. And so we're going to be looking at all of this kind of wrapped up in a big box and then opened up in chapter 9 more in depth. But today we want to continue on in the series on suffering. Okay, we want to continue on in God's sovereignty in the midst of suffering. And so where it's pastoral in 28 through 30, um, it'll be intellectual in chapter 9. And that's when we'll really try to get our intellectual muscles working and the juices flowing. And just, spoiler alert, we still won't fully get it. But we want to worship God in the trying, right? Okay, so we've come today to verse 31 where this idea of suffering continues, but that the suffering will never separate us from the love of God. And that is a very comforting thing. We've known that all things 
are working against us, uh, but not with final success. Because of God's sovereignty, it'll all end in us as Christians being glorified. You see at the end of verse 30. Brian Chappelle, kind of one of our new friends uh, in the Bible study world, has said that the universe is being constrained in its course, bent in new directions for the good of the bride of Christ, which is the church. As much as our perceptions seem to deny this truth, the battles, the rage, the leaders that rise, the events that occur do not thwart his agenda. History inexorably marches forward to triumph of the church of Jesus Christ. He is using all things, even the tragedies of the fallen world, which you and I will go through, by the way, to shape and reshape the world for her sake. The whole creation is being conformed to the purposes that serve the glory of Christ's church. The entire world is Christ's bouquet to his bride in the end. Everything is suffering but God is working all things for the good and he's just wrapping it up into a beautiful bouquet for his bride, for his church in the end. I quoted it last week, but it was at the end of the study and I think your minds were shut down. Mine was starting to, but it was Spurgeon's quote on suffering. When he, he who said, all things work together will soon prove to you that there is a harmony in the most discordant parts of your life. You shall find when your biography is written that the black page did but harmonize with the bright one. That the dark and cloudy day was just a glorious foil to set forth the brighter noontide of your joy. So are you suffering right now? God's working it for glory. He's working it for brightness. R.A. Torrey, someone that we've read at the Pulse, uh, his book, How to Pray. He said that Romans 8, 28 through the end of the chapter is like a soft pillow to the weary head. And so if you're weary today, just rest in the soft pillow. Rest in knowing that God not only is working all things together for the good, but the hardest and worst and darkest of your circumstances right now, of your suffering, it's never gonna separate you from the love of God. And so as we get into verse 31 through 39, or, or 30, yeah, 39 there, um, Paul is going to be essentially first century trash talking, okay? We hear a lot of trash talking these days, and that's what Paul's gonna do. He's gonna be saying, bring it on, okay? He's gonna say, bring on the suffering because nothing can separate. Try as you may, Satan. It's not gonna work. So go ahead, go ahead and bring it on. So verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? You guys remember how this chapter started, right? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay, so the chapter begins with no condemnation. And it's going to end with no separation. But in the middle, where we're at right now, sandwiched in between is no defeat. And so this section, 31 through 39, will help us face our fears in the midst of suffering. We're all familiar with fear, are we not? It can control our thoughts, our actions, even when we think we're not thinking in our sleep. Our fear controls our sleep. We're so afraid of abandonment, alienation, people giving up on us as friends and family. We're afraid of a lack of a job or for our finances to go south. 
We're afraid of accusations to come about against us, perhaps even true accusations. We're afraid of our reputations being tarnished. We're afraid of condemnation and judgments. We're even afraid of suffering itself. Nobody likes pain. Nobody likes death. And we fear death. And some of our fears can be irrational. We can overthink things and lose sleep and develop ticks and twitches. Uh, for like a, a year last year, I had a tick in my right eye, you know, and I'm reading like, what in the world is this from? It's like stress, you know, stress can cause this. And the Lord's just like, Roy, you're just, you're taking it upon yourself. Who's saying that, you know? <laughs> you guys have been there, I'm sure. One man said, fear is like a mushroom that grows in the dark. My mom always said, hey, the monsters always come out at night. You guys ever notice, like, right when you're tired, right before you go to bed, you start worrying about everything, you know? Start worrying about it. You're trying to go to bed. You're tossing, you're turning. And, and you know what? Man, we got to give that over to the Lord. We're not to eat anxious bread. You know, we need to take those thoughts captive into the obedience of Christ. We're worried about someone who didn't call when they say they'd call or they didn't send an email back very quickly or, or reply or the, the tone in their text that they sent us seemed a little, and we worry and we worry. And then usually 99% of the time comes about uh, to not even be something we should have worried about. This happened to me the other day. Uh, a guy sent me a text just wondering something. What, is it, what does he mean by that? You know? And so I worry, I'm going to meet him. And then it was like, oh, no, he totally was thinking about something else. No problem. You know, it was like, why was I putting that on myself? I was fearing that, and I was really stressing out. And that's where the ticks and the gray hair come from. Not all gray hairs. You, I wouldn't know, really, except a little bit. There's a lot of different ways that we can deal with this fear. Some of us try to ignore it and pretend that it doesn't exist. And in that, we never bring it to prayer you know, be anxious for nothing, but in all things with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to the Lord and the peace of God that passes understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We don't do that when we ignore it, right? Oh, there's nothing to pray about. <laughs> just, just put it down there. Uh, but then we also can take on a stoic philosophy, which is indifference. Oh yeah, I know it's there, but I don't really care. And, you know, I can handle it on my own and, you know, it's not going to do anything. And we just kind of stiffen our upper lip, lip and, you know, try to take it on ourselves. And again, we don't pray. Therefore, we don't get the peace of God that passes all understanding. And so the present sufferings that we go through, they're not something of a matter of indifference. And they're something that we shouldn't ignore, but we can bring it before the throne of God and let him take it. And so in this chapter, uh, in this section, 31 through 39, Paul is going to give us a list of five rhetorical questions. Now, please don't frown on me too much, but when I was younger, I used to watch The Simpsons. And I remember this one episode where um, uh, Marge Simpson, the mom, is singing in the kitchen, and she sings the song, How many roads must a man walk down? Before they can call him a man. You guys know it, right? Well, Homer pipes up, seven! And Lisa, the daughter, says, no, Dad, it's a rhetorical question. Okay, eight! And Lisa says, Dad, do you even know what a rhetorical means? And he replies, do I know what rhetorical means? It's all rhetorical, right? Okay. You guys don't get it, that's okay. 
Any, any Simpsons people get it? Okay, anyways, it's all rhetorical. Those are all rhetorical questions. So the questions are asked here. Don't try to answer them, okay? Okay, they're unanswerable, and, and it's, it's just in God's sovereignty. It, it all works out, okay? These are unshakable truths, unshakable truths that are brought about in the question. And in this first question, verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And we start answering, um, seven, you know, six people, seven people. My, na- my neighbor could be against me, okay? Now, if he would have just asked, who can be against us, then we could bring about the barrage. But he didn't just ask that. He prefaced it with, if God is for us, who can be against us? And just everybody knows, nobody. Nobody can be against us if God is for us. And we tend to try to bring the list of people that are going to conquer us even though we know that God is with us. So Paul says there, who can be against us? We often think that we ourselves can be against ourselves. Even my own sin, even my own fallen condition, it's not true. Even your own fallen condition, if you are justified in Christ, the struggles that you go through, even they cannot be against you. As Augustine said, deliver me from my worst enemy, that wicked man, myself. So often we can be our worst enemy. What the question is getting at here is what can ultimately conquer and triumph over us? Nothing, not even yourself, because God is for you. Spurgeon said, I do not know whether the devil is worse than my own flesh or not, but I think I may put him down as being on par with it. For when the devil meets our flesh, the two shake hands and say, how dost thou do, O brother? Sometimes our own flesh, we feel, can be working against us and robbing us of God's love. And God doesn't love us anymore because I messed up. And we stress and we fear about that. But we're to remember not only verse 28, but we're to remember these things, as Paul says. What shall we say to these things? And just kind of look in the chapter with me. You go clear back to verse 2 through 3, and we see that the whole of the law of Moses is fulfilled in Jesus, his son, and imputed to believers. So does it seem there that God is for us? Yes. Well, let's look at verses 9 through 11 and just scan it. We've done weeks and weeks of studying here. Verses 9 through 11, we see that the Holy Spirit dwells in us and gives life to our mortal bodies. Does it seem like God is for us? Yes. Verses 13 through 14, the Spirit leads us in victory over sin, even our own fallen nature, so that we can kill sin. The Spirit leads us in that. Is God for us? You guys are getting it. It was a rhetorical question, by the way. No, I'm kidding. Thank you. Verses 15 through 17, we are adopted called children of God and given the inheritance of Christ. Is God for us? 
Yes. Yes, yeah. Getting Pentecostal. Verses 18 through 19 and verse 28. We see that God is working suffering out for good and for glory. Verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. Is God for us? Working suffering for good. Yes, he is. Verses 20 through 26, all creation, all universe, plants, animals, mineral, rock, Rory, people, we are all longing and groaning for God's glory and for the sons of God to be revealed that we might be delivered from futility, that we might be delivered from frustration. Is God for us? He's the one that's going to deliver us from futility. And then verses 29 through 30, the text today, our salvation, or excuse me, the text from last week and a little bit today, our salvation and our glory has been known and determined from before the beginning of the time by our loving creator who's working it all for the good and working it all for our glory, which is his glory. Is he for us? Good. So what shall we say to all these things? Is God for us? If he's for us, how can he be against us? Or who can be against us? Excuse me. Spent a lot of time last week in Psalm 27. It seemed to just keep coming up in every meeting that I went to. And it says that the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and foes, they stumbled and fell. Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war may rise against me, in this I will be confident. What the psalmist is saying there is, if God is for me, who can be against me? A whole army of 100,000 men coming against me. It seems my utter doom and destruction. But I've got God. See, one man with God is a majority against any other number. Psalm 56, 11, In God I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can a man do to me? If God is for us, who can be against us? John 10, 28, Jesus says, And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all, and no one's able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. If God is for us, he's got us in his hand. He's foreknown us. He's predestined us. He's called us. He's justified us. He's sanctified us. He's glorified us then who in the world is strong enough to pluck us out of his hand? Then the question goes on. The next question, the next rhetorical question, verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And so we have another reason here that we can face our fears in suffering. And that is that in Christ, we have the ultimate provision. Some of you fear what's happening in America, the finances, the economy, 
the jobs, your job, the supports, the international affairs. We freak out. We watch the news as if it is the inspired word of God. And we are terrified and we need to be reminded of God and his provision and his protection and his favor. And here in verse 32, we have the greater to the lesser argument. Have you ever heard of a greater to a lesser argument? What, God is, uh, what Paul is saying here is that if God has already given us the most supreme, costly thing, that being his son, who is deity, then why wouldn't he give us the rest of what we need? The piddly, is there anything above Jesus, the son of God? Is there anything that he could give us that would be more costly than that? Of course not. And so if he's already given us the most costly, why not trust him for those, those lesser things, those lesser needs? And, and our greatest need was to be delivered from the wrath of sin, the wrath of God and of death. Jesus said, if you don't believe in the son, then the wrath of God abides on you. But he provided a substitute in his son giving his son as a gift. Now the language here in verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, is the same language, it's the same speech that's used from clear back in Genesis when Abraham was offering up Isaac. How Isaac didn't, or Abraham did not withhold his son, his one and only son, whom he loved. Now it was just known that the firstborn belonged to God and God had to, the right to take the firstborn because of the penalty of sin. God had the right to take Isaac. In this, Abraham even knew that God was calling his sin to remembrance. And so he went and he walked the hill with his son, the wood upon the son's Back, Abraham knew his sins were being called in. And second of all, he knew, well, maybe he didn't know it at the time, but there was a test of his faith to see if he truly loved God more than his son. And so in the thought of Abraham taking Isaac up to Mount Moriah to, to sacrifice him, the question is asked, how can God be a God of justice and not just sweep sin under the rug and how can he also be a God of grace and love at the same time? Ask yourself that question when you know the story of Abraham and Isaac. God's justice being fulfilled, also of grace and love. Sinclair Ferguson says, you can't understand the story without understanding Jesus. Because in Jesus, you have both justice and grace come together. You have both justice, the fulfilling of God's just, um, righteous judgment against sin, but you also have God's grace and mercy and love being poured out. And so just as Abraham takes the knife, he wasn't withholding his son, his only son, he was delivering up to death. The knife was coming down, just about to plunge into the young lad's chest. God says, stop, Abraham. Now I see that you love me and that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And then he says, here is a ram. Here is a lamb caught in the thicket. And God provides 
and in his provision points to that greater truth of Jesus being the lamb provided that would actually go and pack his uh, burden of sacrifice, the cross, up the exact same hill, Mount Moriah, a couple thousand years later, where God would give his son, his only son, whom he loved. And so we see here God making the provision for our greatest need, that is the sacrifice of sin, by not sparing his only son. That phrase there in Romans 8.32, did not spare, could also be translated in more modern day vernacular, he let him have it. He let him have it. He pulled out all the stops and pouring out the full measure of the wrath of God upon his son. The wrath that we deserve placed upon his son. And if he would do that, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Now that all things, do we literally get all material possessions or selfish gain that we want in this earth? Are you going to really have that Ferrari Testarossa, you know, that you just drool over in the magazines? Probably not. I mean, God might in just some awesome way provide it and you get to use it for ministry purposes. Somehow ministering to one person in that only other seat that's in the car. I'm discipling him, taking him out for a Coke in my Ferrari. Okay, anyways, if God is withholding something from us, two things. It's not because he doesn't care. And you guys say it all the time and I say it. He doesn't care, so he's not giving me it. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up and let him have it, does he really not care? And so we would all say, that's a rhetorical question. I'm not going to answer it. Okay. Of course he cares. Okay, I get that he cares. Well, then he's stingy. No, God's not stingy. Imagine being given a, a giant home worth a million dollars on a hill. And then you realize, oh, the, the doorknob isn't there on a certain closet door. And so you email God, hey, you know, thanks for the house, all wonderful. But the doorknob's not there. And he just replies, no, get your own doorknob. I'm a penny pincher, you know. Of course not. Of course not. He's already given you the greatest why wouldn't he give you the least? He's already given you his son, his only son whom he loved. Why wouldn't he give you the things that he knows that you need? In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 21 through 23, it says, Therefore, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All things are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. So he has given you all things, okay? The things that you need. And if you lack, it's not really lack. It's going to work out for you in the end. It's part of his sovereign purposes. It just sometimes seems like lack. And so he has demonstrated his love for us, his great love of grace is there any question that he's working for the good for those who love him and are called in Christ Jesus? Is there any question? The argument of the greater to the lesser. 
Verse 33, the next rhetorical question. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And so when you know God, when you know redemption, when you know the price that he's paid, you ask the question, who will bring a charge against God's elect? It's rhetorical. In Christ, the third thing I want to deliver you today in that we can have no fear in suffering, it's because in Christ, we have the ultimate advocate. You know, we have a fear of accusations, although perhaps some of you have been in a place where someone has accused you of something and you feel blameless and you challenge them and you say, I dare you to bring all allegations against me. Bring the proof, bring the evidence. And then all of a sudden your mind's floating through all of your path. You're like, oh wait, no, there is, there's proof. There is evidence. No, 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 don't do that. Let's just forget that we ever had this discussion because there is sin and there is reason for condemnation. But the thing is, Jesus doesn't condemn you. In fact, he took all of the condemnation upon himself. We can imagine a courtroom in this verse where witnesses are all called forward to testify of everything that we've ever done wrong. Imagine if they've testified of everything that you even should have done right but didn't do. All the times that you should have glorified God. You might call them sins of omission. Then we would know that we are guilty. No one could stand, right? Could you stand? I couldn't stand. And then we have Psalm 130 verses 3 through 4 where it says, Lord, if you were marking iniquities, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. So who brings a charge against God's elect? Who marks out the iniquities to bring them? Well, we know that, okay, yeah, Satan's doing that and he's the accuser of the brethren and this and that. But it doesn't even matter. That's why it's rhetorical. It's why just don't even, yeah, we just know that God forgives. God forgives. And so we should fear him because of that. It's God who justifies. If he's already taken care of everything, if he's already justified it, us, not only declared us innocent, but actually imputed to us righteousness and made us righteous. Not only did he bring us to ground zero, like, okay, you were total sinners, totally depraved, and I'm going to bring you up here to ground zero, and now you can try to you know, make for yourselves a name. No, he doesn't do that. He says, not only am I going to make you innocent, but I'm going to make you righteous in Christ. Jesus goes above and beyond. That's why Paul says it's God who justifies. There's no charge against the elect. There's no charge against the Christian. Because not only are they innocent, they are righteous. So Paul is saying, let the accusations come. And they do come. And they hurt at first until you remember that God justifies who invented that term, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me? <laughs> my granny used to say that all the time. Granny, it's just not true. Granny, you hurt me with your words all the time. No, not really. Granny never did that. But people that we even love, they can be the ones that can bring the accusations. But it doesn't matter because God justifies 
We know from our Romans 8.1 study that the devil tries to bring the accusations, doesn't he? He brings them in Job chapter 1, verses 6 through 4. And for the sake of time, we're not going to read it, but you guys know it anyways. We've gone through it recently where Satan and the other demons, they would come before the throne of God and they would just come and they would accuse. They would go about, you know, the world and they would seek who they could accuse and who they could slander. And then they come before God and they bring the accusation. And we see the, the pinnacle of that in Revelation chapter uh, 12, verse 7 through 12, where a war breaks out in heaven, Michael and his angels fight with the dragon, that is the devil, and the dragon and his angels fight, but the devil didn't prevail. Listen to this. Nor was found for them in heaven a place any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, the serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth. His angels are cast with them. Then I hear a loud voice saying in heaven, salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down and they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. So what is Satan doing up there just appearing before God? He's accusing the brethren day and night. So we know that's going on, right? But who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? Satan. No, don't answer that. It's rhetorical. Because you know God justified you. If you're a Christian, you are righteous. There's no room for accusation in the kingdom of heaven. Because they come to nothing in the light of what Jesus has done. Verse, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. John says, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So when you do struggle and when you do stumble and when you sense this, the accuser, the district attorney you know, of heavens coming to bring the charge against you, you can say, you know what? I've got an attorney. I've got an advocate with the father and that is jesus i remember growing up there was a show on tv it might be on still called jag you know uh it stands for the military branch of judicial system which is judge advocate general and that's jesus <laughs> you know that's god that's we're the judge we're the advocate we're the general of the lord's army like we defend we defend so whenever you sense a charge coming against you, you memorize this verse Man, I just feel condemned. I feel this charge against me. Hey, I've got the judge advocate general. And he stands and he defends me. Verse 34. The next question. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God and who also makes intercession for us. And so we don't have to fear in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our suffering, because in Christ, we have the ultimate intercessor. We feel condemned in judgment, and this kind of ties in with the previous question. People will try to condemn us and demand judgment. I know some of you have been going through some court hearings lately. 
So people will try to condemn us and try to judge us. We're told in the word that sometimes our own hearts even tries to condemn us and judge us. And again, it's not that we don't deserve condemnation, because we do, but it's because Jesus took our condemnation upon him. Just if you have your Bibles, you can just flip over a page probably to Romans 8, 3, where it says, For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his only son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. There is no condemnation upon us because Jesus has fulfilled righteousness for us. And so the answer that Paul gives us, or the, the, the statement, he says, Christ died, but he didn't stay dead. That wouldn't necessarily be good news. He says, and furthermore, he is also risen. You know, when people die, we kind of throw out terms like, oh, he lives on. He lives on, yes. You know, lives on in my heart. And the memories that I have kind of keep his spirit alive or something. I know we got some weird theology sometimes when we throw, throw that out there. Or we, you know, we turn on the Celine Dion soundtrack from Titanic, you know, and my heart will go on. She sings, you know, and then like, that's not what Paul's talking about here. Like, oh, Jesus lives on. We remember, you know, the gospels and things. No, he actually lives on. He's actually alive. And what is he doing while he is alive? Well, it says that he is at the right hand of God and lives to make intercession for us. The Hebrews tells us that. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 7 says, For the Lord God will help me, therefore I will not be disgraced. Therefore I've set my face like a flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. He who is near, he is near who justifies me, who will content with me. Let us stand together. Who's my adversary? Let him come near me. Surely the Lord God will help me. Who is he who condemns me? Indeed, they all grow old like a garment. The moth will eat them up. When we have the Lord with us, there is no condemnation. Rather, he's actually praying for us. He's advocating. He's our attorney. He is so working right now in the life that he has that there's no accusations, there's no condemnation. If you happen to flip there to Isaiah, just flip over a couple chapters to 54, verse 17. Where it says, No weapon formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue which rises against you in judgment you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. So who's going to condemn you? Who's going to try to destroy you? Oh, they'll try, but it comes to nothing because someone out there is praying for you, and that is God himself. Verse 35, the next question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then this list of every type of problem that you can think of, tribulation or distress. I mean, that's just anguish. That's just danger. What about persecution 
or famine or nakedness, things that our bodies go through that seem that, man, this should be separating me from the love of God. I mean, Jesus says there in the Mount of Beatitudes that, right, he, he takes care of the birds of the air and the flowers of the field, so I should be full, right? And I should have clothes on. What happens when we are naked? What do you do with the promises of God there? We say he's working. He's working for the good. Who's going to separate us from this love? Jesus' love is the item to be separated from here. In fact, John chapter 13, verse 1 says that he loved his own to the end. If Jesus loved the world so much that he loved us to the end, he gave, you know, God gave his only begotten son, he loved us to the end, what's going to separate us from that kind of love? Are these things, the tribulation? We know that God uses tribulation for the good, right? We've been going through that the last six weeks. Even back in Romans chapter 5, we, you know, Paul says, we glory in tribulation, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. So God's working that for the good. Is tribulation going to separate us from his love? No. Distress, persecution? Well, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, blessed are you who are persecuted, you're blessed. You're so very happy. Great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets before you. So is persecution going to separate you? No. And then these, this list of things, all of them Paul went through. You can read about it in 2 Corinthians 11. None of these. Famine, Paul went through it. Nakedness, Paul went through it. Peril, he talks about in perils of waters. He had shipwrecks. He talks about in perils of robbers. Is that going to separate you from the love of God when the guy breaks in and holds you and your wife and your family captive, steals all your stuff? Is that going to separate you from God's love? No. Paul went through peril of robbers. Paul says there in 2 Corinthians 11, he went through perils of his own countrymen. So he says things. I've been there, he says. And I say, bring it on. Nothing can separate. What about the sword? Paul would finally meet the sword in Rome and have his head cut off according to church history. And do you think Paul would say, and that was it. That's what separated me from the love of God. He says in verse 36, as it's written, for your sake, we're killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. That's quoting Psalm 44, 22. In the context of the Psalms here, it's not written in the time of exile, but rather David is saying this calamity is not directly connected to anything. We're just suffering, you know, in our suffering day-to-day -day life, we're like sheep accounted for the slaughter. But you know what? It goes to Jesus, who was that sheep that was slaughtered. He was the suffering servant, and we share in Christ's sufferings. Like Romans 8, 17 says, if we partake in his sufferings, what else are we going to partake in? You guys should know it by now. Week number like six in this is glory. If we partake in his sufferings, we shall also be glorified together with him. We share in those sufferings. Verse 37, running short on time, we're going to kind of finish. You got to get through Romans 8 at some point in history. Verse 37, yet in all these things, even in being like a sheep being slaughtered, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
Is it in ourselves that we're more than conquerors? Is it in our self-righteousness that we're more than conquerors? It's, it's in Jesus. Because he conquered, we conquered. As 2 Corinthians 2.14 says, Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. 1 Corinthians says a similar thing. He always gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians talks about how Jesus disarmed principalities and powers and made a public spectacle of them. And so all this idea of triumphing over suffering, triumphing over the world in Christ, the Romans knew what Paul was talking about here. I'm reading uh, Josephus's The War of the Jews, and I just got to the part in the account where Titus comes back to Rome after destroying Jerusalem, conquering the Jews at Masada and Gamla and Galilee and ultimately destroying the temple. And he comes back in in his triumph. And it was there because of Titus that they created the Ark of Triumph. Right after he died, uh, his brother created this arch for whenever the Romans would win, they would come back with their chariots and their horses and they would come in with their army and the general would be in the front and he would come through and the flowers would be descending from the Roman rooftops and behind him would be the general that he just conquered. In this case, John and Simon from Jerusalem. And he has them behind him and he's just standing in his pomp and in all of his glory and all of his victory. And his army would follow him and they would come in and there would be days and days of celebration and theater where an exact replica of the city that was just taken was, was you know, made. And, and there was a theatric, theatric display where it looked so real, uh, Josephus says. It looked just like what I saw when I was there. So, you know, the Romans knew what this triumph is. And in all things, Jesus makes us more than conquerors. Because of Jesus, we come in in a chariot. We come in with the flower petals coming down. We come in with the principalities and the powers that he disarmed behind us, behind him. Because he leads us in that glory. In Christ, we are more than conquerors. It's even better than when Titus came back from Palestine. Verse 38 for I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come. None of this. Paul says, if I live, I live to the Lord. If I die, I die to the Lord. It's all good. He says in verse 39, what about height or depth or any other created thing? He says, I'm persuaded. It's solidified in my heart. None of it's able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. There's just this staircase, you know, that we just go up. And just finally, as we get to verse 39, he just gets to, you name it. If I could just make a, a, just a list, I, I put it all out there. Is there anything created, including yourself, including Satan, including demons, including cancer, including whatever, that could separate you from my love? Is there anything? There is nothing. Kendra, why don't you come on up and lead us in a song of worship? And I'll just close with John Stott here, who says, Paul's five questions are not arbitrary. They are all about the kind of God we believe in. Together, they affirm that absolutely nothing can frustrate God's purpose since he's for us or quench his generosity since he's not spared his son, or accuse or condemn his elect 
since he's justified them through Christ or sunder us from his love since he's revealed it in Christ. Nothing can separate from what God in his grace and sovereignty has provided for the Christian. Let's bow our head and just set things aside. And What a message today for the Christian. What a message today for those who've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, for those who've had their sins forgiven, for those who've been justified, not only made innocent, but actually made right, made righteous. Lord, we who are Christians here rejoice in that. Those of you here today though, who are not a Christian, just there's so much that's separating you from God right now, namely your sin. You have sinned and you have fallen short of the glory of God. Your sin has a wage with it and that wage is death. And you will collect that wage one day, both physically you'll die, but then spiritually you'll have an eternal death in the lake of fire. But God is good and he brought you here today to hear the good news that if you would look to the cross and look upon Jesus' sufferings and his blood pouring down from that tree, then you'll be forgiven. If you would realize that Jesus is there where you should have been so that he can give you what's his, his perfection, his righteousness, and his blood is that sacrifice that takes away the sins of the world. And today, right now, if that's you, you came through the doors, not a Christian, but the Holy Spirit speaks to you right now and says, if you would just rest in what I've done on the cross, where I paid for your sins, and if you would rest in what I did at the grave where I rose from the dead so that I could impart to you eternal life and resurrection power, you will be saved today. You will be a Christian. And nothing, not the worst of the worst, not the pain of the pain, not the sick of the sick, not the depraved of the depraved, not the innermost dungeon of a prison, even if your foolish choices put you there, nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Jesus our Lord. I've given you my son. I'm gonna give you everything. And just rest right now where you're at in that. We're gonna go to communion with this last song and and we're gonna just have to kind of make it quick. You can come forward and grab the communion elements and sit and just reflect during the song of the broken body of Jesus, pierced and wounded for our sins, the blood of Jesus that was shed for the forgiveness of sins. And as you do it, as you take those elements, Let's do it in remembrance of Jesus.
And as you look at the cup, as you look at the bread, you remember right now, obviously, there's nothing that will come against us. There's nothing that will condemn us. There's nothing that will separate us because of this, because of the blood, because of the body. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754. Or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.